listener. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Broadsheet Around Town. I'm Publications Director Nick Connellan. Today's guest is, I'm convinced, one of the busiest people in Australia. His TV show, The Cook-Up, airs on SBS every weeknight. He writes recipes for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. He publishes cookbooks, and a lot of them. He has three young kids, and somehow he's really active on social media too. Welcome, Adam Liao, and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Do you sleep? <laughs> Not a lot, to be honest. It's something I'm trying to work on this year. My, my sleep is historically my entire life been very, very bad and I don't do a lot of it. But yeah, I, you know, to be honest, I, I think I do too much work-wise. Um, but uh, I, I try to think of the things that I'd like to stop doing and I don't really want to stop doing anything I do. So <laughs> unfortunately, it just keeps getting more and more, um, yeah, like a hoarder. <laughs> so what does a week actually look like for you? It varies a lot. You know, last week I was uh, traveling a huge amount. I, I think I was on a plane every day, at least one plane per day last week and, and two planes on some of the days. But um, uh, this week is a little bit more reserved. I don't think I'm filming anything. I've got a lot of uh, interviews and things and I'm. we were shooting a cookbook um, so we're just finishing that off uh, now and doing a bit of writing at home. So it's a, it's a little bit more reserved um, this week, but it, it 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 really is a movable piece. It changes a lot. When you are home in Sydney with your family, are you a morning person or a night person? What is your routine like? <laughs> um, uh, I like doing different things. I like being productive in the mornings and in the evenings. You know, I. I probably don't do a lot. And that said, you know, I only get after I've finished, you know, I, I usually put the kids to bed, do a little bit of work and then relax between like 10.30 and 11.30 and then uh, try and get to bed before midnight if I can. And then I'm usually up around four or so, which is not a huge amount of sleepy time for me. But um, I, I like getting stuff done in the morning. I usually get quite a, quite a fair bit of things done, not necessarily like work, but uh, things that I need to do done in the morning. Last time Broadsheet caught up with you, which was only six months ago, you said that you'd been timing yourself cooking dinner and that on average you were doing it in 18 minutes or less, which I think is so impressive. How much practice did it take for you to get this quick? And do you think people would cook more often if, if they were that quick? Yeah, I, I don't think it's practice, to be honest. I think it's it's confidence because, and, and I should say, the reason I was timing myself was not because I'm a psychopath or anything like that. It's just the, the, <laughs> it's the most common thing that you hear from people saying, you know, that they don't have time to cook. And I was like, well, how long does cooking actually take the way that I do it, you know? And yeah, the average was around 18 minutes um, for dinner. And yes, I probably chop a little bit faster than your average person, but it's also, you know, why don't you just do less chopping, you know, use things whole, cut up two things instead of 15. And I think, you know, what we've lost by constantly being, um, you know, negged about the idea of cooking, like we're oh, cooking so hard, you know, the convenience food industry has sold us for so long that cooking is something that is all but impossible to do unless you're a trained professional chef and have worked in the finest kitchens around the world. Uh, whereas it's it has always been an incredibly simple skill, and so you just need to have, a, I guess, that bit of confidence to cook something simple. You know, if I do a, a stir fry for dinner, which is probably what we do most nights, and this is why I kind of cook in eighteen minutes, it won't take me more than ten minutes to make that. You know, I'll cut up one 
one vegetable, one meat, throw it together into a, a, a wok, uh, and clean that wok in less than 10 minutes, you know, it's, it's, uh, and I might do one or two of those, uh, a night and then some leftovers from the night before it's, it, if you are satisfied as we should be with cooking simple food, then it's really not hard to cook at all. Yeah. I think that kind of what you're hinting at is that we're, we're all probably a bit more ambitious than we should be. And you've, you've spoken about that before that we should be aiming to cook like home cooks and not like professional chefs. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the world of professional chefs, and I love going out to restaurants, they're two completely different things. You know, a, a restaurant meal, and this is why I'm, I am absolutely against the idea of restaurant quality in home cooking, because it's not an increase in quality. It's an increase in difficulty when you go to a restaurant. That's, that's why a restaurant exists. You know, I, I would like to think that most people at home could cook a, high, a better quality meal than they could get at a restaurant because the ingredients will be more affordable. The process should be simpler. Um, restaurants try to give you some, something that you will not be able to do at home, whether that is sourcing a rare ingredient or d- a process that that might be difficult or cook for too long. You know, the if I was designing a a recipe for a restaurant, it would be something that probably took a fair amount of effort early on in the day when no one's in the restaurant that can be then finished a la minute right at the end in a few seconds. Whereas at ho- for home, you don't, you're at work during the day, you know, for most of us. So you don't have those hours of prep that you need to go into the meal. So you want a meal to design, to design a, a home cooked meal. You want something that is going to be sort of start to finish in, in as short a time possible. What's the most memorable meal you've eaten recently? Who, who were you with? What did you eat and kind of what was your mood? Uh, we ju- we, we've just come off uh, Lunar New Year and uh, my family gets together on New Year's Eve for the reunion dinner. That's sort of, you know, Chinese Chinese version of Christmas, I guess. And so we just had that uh, just last uh, two weeks ago now. Um, and that was that was great, actually. Uh, I We all get together. We, we had about 60 of us. At dinner that night, and some people bring a bring a plate, and others, you know, we've been doing it a while, so you you know the old classics that everyone's going to bring, and you know my um, step step sister always brings these jellies that the kids absolutely love, and so it's, it's just kind of like greatest hits of all the things that uh, my family does well, and the extended family all bring their things, and you know my auntie was like, oh Adam, you used to love this dish from when you were. A little kid, you know, I've, I've known, obviously, they're my family, I've known them my whole life. And so there's just so much memory and history and joy in a, in a meal like that. And, you know, we, I, I roll out a few new dishes, some things that uh, I've uh, taken a new spin on or something. So it does keep it fresh, but it's just this this really lovely, natural progression of a, of a meal that we've been doing for, for decades now. And what did you take this time? So I made uh, a whole fish. I, I did a I did a whole fish, um, uh, like a whole snapper for like Christmas ten years ago, and it was so popular. Um, a whole salmon, actually, not snapper. Uh, that every single family gathering, they always ask me to to make it again, and they're like, "Oh, what did you do to the fish?" I'm like, I, I, "The same as I did every year." You know, I just, literally just take the whole fish, throw it in the oven for like. 35 minutes, take it out, and then make some kind of sauce to pour over the top of it. It's the easiest thing in the world, but we did that again. Uh, we had some nice prawns that I um, sort of stir-fried in garlic butter with, with a touch of honey, actually, and uh, a really nice sherry vinegar that a friend of mine made. Um, so, it's, yeah, just putting together a couple of really basic things. 
Feels like the stakes are a bit higher for you, though, bringing food to the family function. Probably no one else is employed as a, a recipe tester and a, <laughs> a TV chef. No, but you see, it, it really is uh, just about being comfortable with it. Like, I honestly don't stress about it. My my dad was like, oh, what are you going to make for dinner? Oh, like, dinner was starting at six and he was it was like noon and he was like, what are you going to make for dinner? I, I bought a fish so you can do a fish and there's, there's some nice prawns that I saw at the market. And, you know, he'd already done the shopping for the ingredients, but he said, what do you want to do with them? I was like, I don't know, I'll make it up. And so I just like at around four, I started cooking dinner for six. And um, I don't know, it's just, it's not stressful for me because I, I guess I've done it quite a few times. But I think, you know, I, I can understand why some people would be stressed about doing that. So you also said last time we caught up with you that you develop six to 800 recipes a year, which again, just blows my mind. What's your process <laughs> with that? Do you kind of start with a central ingredient and then um, layer things on top of it or, or is there something else? Uh, some, sometimes I do. Sometimes, um, you know, I, I often think that with the number of recipes that there are in the world today, millions and millions at our fingertips every single moment, you know, to write another one, firstly, you know, you could think, why bother? But the average person in Australia cooks five things and variations of those things and different permeations, permutations of those things. And so why do we need more? But the five things that I cook are different from the five things that you cook and the five things that somebody else cooks. And so we actually, you know, there will be recipes that I write that will resonate with somebody that I, you know, then it's not, it, it's not a bad recipe, but it's just not something that I would make every week. But I'll get messages and people say, I, I absolutely love this. You know, it's on our regular rotation now. I was like, okay, great. That's uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm so great grateful that that found a home, you know, in your kitchen. But for me, I think for a new recipe to exist, it needs a purpose. And so I'll often start with, you know, what's something like, I might focus on for a couple of days, cheap recipes. Like how can I really make things more affordable? And I'll look at cheaper cuts and things like, or I might focus on quick recipes and try and do things are a bit quicker. You know, I, I just yesterday I was, I wrote eight different recipes for, pastas that could be made in the time it takes for the pasta to boil. You know, that, that was the, I guess, the brief I gave myself. It's not like, there's nobody that gives me these briefs, but I give myself these kind of little challenges to do. And so I thought, well, you know, most of the pastas that I make at home are not ragouts or slow braises. Sometimes they are. You know, if it, coming into winter, I'll probably write a bunch of those. Um, but they're often things that I'll throw in, 500 grams, one packet of pasta onto the boil, and I've got 10 minutes or eight minutes or 14 minutes, depending on the actual shape of the pasta, to turn that into something. And so if I'm making a spaghetti that cooks in uh, 10 minutes, I'll try and make a, a sauce, inverted commas, uh, that is eight minutes because I usually take the spaghetti out two minutes before the time on the packet. But if it's like a 14-minute rigatoni, then I've got a little bit longer to, to put that together in the pan. It's a good challenge for yourself. So once these once these recipes have been written, I assume you've got a, a team behind you that test them, um, or is that you? Can I You're your own tester? Can I, can I level level with you that I uh, usually don't test recipes before they go into production? In and that's not to say like they get cooked multiple times before they get to the consumer. But so if I write a recipe for the cook-up, for example, I'll just write the recipe and I'll send it to the kitchen team. And the kitchen team will then not test it, but they'll send it to me and I'll cook it on the show quite often uh, for the first time. 
sometimes there'll be a swap or something that needs to be made. And, and so I'll work with a kitchen team to, to do that. But the thing that I've found is, you know, as somebody who has written quite literally tens of thousands of recipes, um, if I need to test it to make it work, there's no point in writing that recipe. You know, I know the proportions that a cake will rise in. And sometimes there's stuff that I'm not really sure on or I'm not sure of the proportion of this ingredient and we'll fine-tune that. But the threshold of whether the recipe will work or not work, uh, you know, if if after writing 10,000 recipes I can't get that right just by writing it, then I should not write that recipe because the 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 strike zone that that recipe will need to hit is too small for the average person to make. Gotcha. Um, and I know that sounds like a bit of a cop out, um, but uh, you know I've been doing this a, a long time, and I have found like sometimes I'll you know I'll go and I'll write a recipe and go this is really good, but I just needs a, a bit more, and I'll test it seven, eight ten times. The more times I need to test the recipe, the worse that recipe is. Yes, I might get to the right result for me, and I can make it again well, but once it gets into someone else's kitchen they'll make those same mistakes again because they might not measure it exactly right or their tin might be a different size or their stove is a different um, you know, heat output or they're using a different burner to the one that I did or the material of their pan is different. There's so many variables there that I try to write recipes that have the biggest strike zone possible. And I was talking to Yotama Otolenghi about this and he kind of writes recipes like a like he's got a sniper rifle and I write them like I've got a shotgun because <laughs> you know he wants to hit that target right in the middle every time, but I just want to make sure that anyone who picks up the recipe can just blast away and get the right result. I got to say, he's the only chef that I've come across consistently where he, he gives you the grams of the herbs and the grams of the yeah. salt and everything. And it's like, really, what's four grams of time? Like, just give me a sprig or, <laughs> you know, but it's very and, precise. And he, and he writes great recipes. It's just his, his approach is very different uh, from mine. And you know, he has the the OTK, the Otolenghi test kitchen that that can refine all of those down to that that grammage and material of pan, dimension of pan, and everything like that. But you know, for to to me, for the average punter who's picking up something on a Tuesday night to make for dinner. Um, I feel that they want something that's just going to work, regardless of whether or not they weighed the rosemary. I was chatting to a really talented brewer last year um, who makes up a lot of recipes. They they might have, you know, plums and rosemary in them or something. And I said to him, how do you know that it's going to work? Because you have to go through the brewing process. And he goes, no, 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 no. I've, I, I just envision it in my head and I can tell in my head whether the flavors are going to lock together and whether it's going to work. It's almost this kind of like synesthesia <laughs> or something. Are you kind of at that level as well? I think we overplay how well flavors need to work together. To me, the secret to making food taste good has very little to do with flavor, and by that I mean aroma. So the things that that matter a lot to whether your food is tasting good or not is taste, and those we only taste five things. The, the things that you can taste with your mouth, which is salt, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. And so you can, when I write recipes, I always look for how that is going to balance out. Like, where's the salt coming from? Where's the the sourness coming from? Where's the sweetness coming from? Is there, you know, are there so many umami ingredients in there that you need a little pinch of sugar to balance that out? And so that to me is quite easy to, uh, I guess, work out from that way, you know. And I think if you get those taste elements right, which 
is what we call seasoning, essentially. In, in Western cooking, often people talk about seasoning as just being putting salt in food. In Asian cooking, it's it's you know five five dimensional. It's salt, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. And so, once you can balance those tastes right, you know, I, I know that if I'm cooking something with fish sauce, for example, it will need a bit of sweetness in there from something. It could be from an ingredient. It could be from another seasoning like, you know, honey or uh, sugar or something like that to balance that salty savoriness of the fish sauce. So I, you know, I've been cooking long enough that I can know that. But once you apply this well-seasoned balance of seasonings to ingredients, you can actually combine a lot of different ingredients together and they will still taste good. You know, um, the the thing that I always get people to do is to to take a herb and hold their nose and eat a piece of mint, for example. And you won't really taste anything, but when you let go of your nose, you have this beautiful mint aroma. And that can what that tells you is that you can put a kilo of mint or four grams of mint into your dish, and all it's going to do is make it taste more or less like mint. Uh, or smell more or less like mint. But if you do the same thing, hold your nose and drink fish sauce or put a tablespoon of salt in your mouth or sugar, you know there will be a massive difference in how that affects food. And so you need to pay more attention to the proportions and the balances of those taste-containing ingredients more so than the, the aroma ingredients. Do you think this is an easy skill for someone to build up, a, a home cook, to, to start thinking in these terms that you do? I, I I think so, you know, because if anything, that really simplifies cooking because all of a sudden you're thinking about five things rather than five million. You know, the, the number of different aromas and things that you can add to your food are, are truly endless. But when you talk about taste and the balance of taste, people do that instinctively anyway. You know, we, we, we the, the basis of all cuisines has always been to kind of do that. You know, if, if you're cooking with tomatoes, some people will go, oh, you got to put a little bit of pinch of sugar in there and they might not know why they're doing it but they've been their, their grandma did it and they did it but they're doing it because the, sh- the tomatoes are probably slightly acidic and they're also quite savory so that little pinch of sugar balances out the the sourness of uh, the tomato and also the, the the umami or the savoriness of it and so you know if you go to vietnamese cuisine and you're blending together uh fish sauce and vinegar or citrus juice and sugar to make nok chum the balance of those fish sauce, salty, savory, uh, sugar, sweet, uh, vinegar or citrus, sour is kind of natural to that. And you see that balance of savory, sweet and sour in every cuisine around the world, you know, whether it's mustard in Germany or ketchup in um, US or here or you know, our tomato sauce or nok cham or agrodolce or sweet and sour pork. And, you know, that, that that's a, it's a pretty key biological taste balance that every human being on earth likes uh, across all different cultures. And so you can, I guess, write to the things that biologically humans are going to enjoy. Is there an ingredient that you're really obsessed with at the moment that you've kind of come across and you just can't wait to use it in recipes? Um, I, I, I actually really love the seasonality of ingredients. And I know everyone says that, but it's something that I think it's just lovely to look forward to when things come into season. Right now, I, you know, it's capsicum time for me and 
yes, there's lots of nice tomatoes and stuff around because we're sort of getting to that tail end of summer. But the capsicums are really lovely right now, and uh, you know my kids love capsicums, so we're doing a lot of caps different capsicum dishes in in different ways. Um, but you know, seasonality in cooking is not just cheap and high quality. You know, although it is those things. You know, when 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 something is in season, it tends to be cheaper and also tends to be its best quality. But it's also a really lovely rhythm to cooking where. Yes, you could buy me- uh, asparagus imported from Mexico or around the world uh, all year round, or you could wait and look forward to eating asparagus for that little period of time in spring when it's really nice. And and uh, I think the patience of waiting for that makes it even better. You know, I don't need to eat an asparagus stir fry in the middle of winter, or um, but I'll really look forward to it at the start of spring when that comes. And I I, th- I think we we don't talk about that patience enough you know over the next 20 years i'm happy to eat asparagus 20 times <laughs> rather than having the convenience of eating asparagus every single monday because i happen to like asparagus so you do that for 20 weeks in a row you won't like asparagus anymore but you wait 20 years to eat 20 seasons worth of asparagus then that's that's going to be a nice time of year every year it's funny you bring up asparagus as the example um years ago i lived in germany and there's, um, they have their, what they call Spargelzeit, which is essentially um, asparagus time or asparagus season. And it's this huge celebration of when the asparagus comes <laughs> into season. The fruit shops are stocked wall to wall with asparagus. Um, asparagus soup and entrees and stuff come onto all the menus. And it's just like, even if you don't like the stuff that much, it's an amazing time. And they would have the same with strawberries. And I, th- I kind of think we could be better at that in Australia. Like there's not yeah, there's not as much emphasis on on what's in season and what's not. And you, you kind of have to figure it out yourself at the fruit shop, don't you, if you go to a fruit shop? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have been, I guess, if you went back 80 years or 70 years even, um, that's how we all would eat. And, you know, we'd have asparagus festivals and strawberry festivals and things like that. But um, the industrialization of food really from the 1960s onwards, and I know that it happened a bit before that, um, and it was, I got a lot of flack on social media last week, actually, for, not, just because I wrote an article that, it was a kind of a jokey article around Valentine's Day about how America was the country in the world most responsible for ruining food globally, and I know everyone <laughs> likes to, to kick American food, but it's it, I don't dislike American food. I literally made like a De- Detroit style pizza yesterday. Um, what I dislike is the way that, you know, political lobbying and the processed food industry has really stripped away so many of these really wonderful things about food and food culture. So that, you know, because th- there's nothing great about being able to buy asparagus all year round. What's great about that? is not for you and me. What's great about that is for a supermarket who wants to sell asparagus all year round. You know, that's the only person that benefits from that particular thing. You know, Mm. if, if you, if you or I had to make a decision of, do you want an asparagus festival where you, you, you fall in love with asparagus every single year, uh, all over again at this particular time of spring, or would you like to make sure that you can always have asparagus the second that you want it? I would choose the former rather than the latter. I think most of us would, but we've kind of been told that 
oh, no, 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 it's, it's a good thing for us to be able to buy every ingredient at every possible time and ship it from around the world so that you never have to, for a moment, decide that you're not, that you are, can't get asparagus when you want to have it immediately. You know, that's not for us. That's for, that's for, that's for the supermarket's benefit. And so we have learnt through the impact of the processed food industry, primarily, secondarily, uh, ironically, the U.S. farm bill and political lobbying. That you know, in the U.S., the the uh, and I don't mean to gripe about this too much, but the recommendation, the federal recommendation, is that every human being should drink four cups of milk a day. <laughs> and that's got nothing to do with your health or mine. That's the U.S. dairy industry, but it makes it into, you, you know, U.S. regulations. And so we have this, these really weird ideas about food. Like we have to be able to get every ingredient every time. And, uh, you know, the Mediterranean diet is the only diet that's ever going to be good for you, um, which is, you know, I should say the Mediterranean diet is exactly the same as just about every Asian diet <laughs> and every Asian cuisine. Um Traditional foods and traditional ways of cooking are tried and true, and they've been cooked for thousands of years and generations and adapted. And um, it's only in this incredibly short period of time from the 1960s onwards that we've started to throw away all of these important um, truths that humankind has known about food for a very long time in favor of uh, the overt commercialization of the, the way that we choose to cook and eat. How do you think your career would have gone if you, you had grown up in the US and, and were working in that sort of food environment and that food culture rather than the one we have here? Do you think there's much difference? Yeah, there's a big difference. Um, there, there, there really is. You know, we have in Australia, I think, a much better idea uh, and you know we have i guess a more recent um model of multiculturalism to the us and we also have a far more agricultural side we don't have quite the, the the level of uh you know commercial agricultural interests that skew things there you know i you watch sometimes viral videos coming out of the us and it's all about overabundance and it's you know the 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 fattiest and most enormous hamburger you've ever seen you know you, people take you on tours of their pantry and their pantry looks like a supermarket because they've got 500 cans of the same thing there and you know the idea of abundance has been uh you know something that has been in 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 human consciousness since uh ag the beginning of agriculture but usually for most people it's like fresh fruit and vegetables, but America, I guess, has a different view on it that in order to, 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 to be prosperous and to have a nice pantry, you need to have 500 of the same thing there. It needs to look like a supermarket rather than a farm. And I know I feel like I'm harping on about this way too much, but um, I think we, we cook a lot, a lot more naturally in Australia. And, you, and you know, quite often you read recipes that come out of America and you're like, well, I don't even know what half of those things are. And they're you know, just get a can of marshmallow whip and uh, two quarts of this and put it together with some sodium reduced quark or, or whatever. And like, I, I, you can't even read them anymore, these American recipes. <laughs> Do you think there's anything we could learn from them? I'm giving you an opportunity to be charitable here. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, 
I, I think we, we see the worst of it. You know, we, we see the worst of American food in the sense that these days on social media, we see essentially viral videos coming out of America. There are, you know, I follow New York Times. I'm a subscriber to New York Times Cooking. I think that is a fabulous resource. Uh, there are amazing foods that come out of the US, not in terms of products, but in terms of ways of thinking, you know, Alice Waters and Chez Panisse and a lot of this, um, you know, the whole farm to table movement started essentially in California and, and, uh, and New York, places like Blue Hills. Well, if, if I could be devil's like advocate, it kind of had to start there because the food system had got so broken that they had to reverse it. Whereas <laughs> I think there's a lot of other countries where farm to table's always been the, the norm. Like, True. I don't know if you agree Very, with that. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, where, where were the ingredients coming from before farm to table? Like, they were still coming from a farm. You just didn't care about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no, like I, I, I'm, I don't mean to be down on American food as a cuisine. What I'm down on is uh, allowing, I guess, the commodification of food uh, to overtake literally everything from culture to health to taste. You know, the, the idea that, that um, you, you know, low-fat foods came to prominence literally because of the US dairy industry lobbying for low-fat milk to be included. Uh, and that's where that three cups a day of three glasses of milk a day comes from. And as of 2012, US schools are mandated. They, they are only allowed to serve low-fat milk in there. And it's just this weird, and you know, from the food pyramid onwards, there has just been this this really weird way of just allowing business to override health, culture, everything when it comes to food. And it's, it's, it's a little depressing, I have to say. You, you have been known for some hot takes. There was one a few years ago, <laughs> which was um, cutting the, the loaf of bread lengthways so that it, it can fit a whole sausage in it when you're doing your sausage sizzle, which I love. I thought it was genius, but people were, people were, some people were outraged by that, this idea. Have you got any more? kind of outraged. A lot of people were like, you faked that or it's not possible. Like, why on earth would I fake something like this? Just, to, just for, for listeners' clarity, the idea was you go to like a baker's delight and you get a half loaf of bread, not a full loaf, and then you get them to put it through the slicing machine uh, lengthways rather than sideways. So you get these kind of rectangular slices of bread that are the length of a half a loaf of bread. And that's when you can put your uh, barbecue sausage on there and you don't have sausage overhang. And Genius. It, honestly, it was just I was having a barbecue that day and I was like, oh, what if they did this? And they did it for me and I was like, that worked pretty well. And um, <laughs> some people didn't like the... Um, the changing it up uh, and some people just was like the, the overhanging sausage off the edge of the bread is the best part and I can get behind that too. I was just providing an option. I, I kind of love that in Australia the main thing that we have to argue about is these petty little, you know, regional differences. Is it a potato <laughs> cake? Is it a potato scallop? It's like it shows that, you know, at the, the heart of it, like we're, we're all pretty together. But have you, have you got any other hot takes that you want to get off your chest before we say bye-bye? Uh, well, the, the other one, and I'll, I'll go back to the sausage and bread because <laughs> we did this, uh, the, the series I did before this current season of the cook-up was a show called Adam and Poe's Great Australian Bites, where we traveled around trying to find Australia's national dish. And, 
at the end of the show. Like you can watch it on demand if you want to. I'm not, I, I, I feel okay giving it away because it's already aired. But at the end of the show, the, the, the most votes came in for the democracy sausage being our national dish. And, you'll, you know, to be honest, even the, the producer at SBS was kind of like, oh, do you think we can do that? Like, are people going to be out? like annoyed by that I was like we had a vote that's what it came out as and you can't you don't get to choose your national dish it's uh you know you have it at every barbecue that you've ever been to you have it when you vote you know it just is what it is but I also <laughs> did an, a, another video on my Instagram where I put a piece of cheese just regular cheese down on it was a, a pan but I said you could do it on a barbecue and then you put just bread on top of that and then when the cheese browns, it'll actually stick more to the bread than to the barbecue. And so you can turn it off and you've essentially got the fastest way of making cheese on toast. Then you can put your sausage on top of that and you've got a cheesy sausage in bread. And people were, again, outraged by that. They were like, it's not going to work. And I was like, well, again, why would I fake something like this? <laughs> and yes, it does work. It's, uh, it's just a, the easiest way of making cheese on toast. I'm going to try that. Please do. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends and family, leave us a review and keep listening. Subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening now to make sure that you don't miss an episode.